Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back, or if you're a first-time listener, welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 24th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm very happy to be joined today by Ross Ramsey, who is Executive Editor of the Texas Tribune. Ross has been president at the Tribune since its founding in 2009, uh, after a illustrious career doing several other things. <laughs> Mucking around. Mucking around. <laughs> and Ross is one of the leading mucking and journalistic voices uh, on Texas politics today, so we're lucky to have him. And for those of you in the Government 312 class, you'll see and read Ross elsewhere in the course material, although we're not paying the Tribune royalties. Um, okay, I want to start with a piece that you put out yesterday, I guess, in the Tribune, maybe day before yesterday now. It'll be dated July 8th. Um, in the Texas Tribune. It's called, Why Would Politicians Fix Our Immigration Problems When They Can Campaign Off the Mess? And one of the reasons I want to start with it is because it seems to, it, you know, it plugs into the situation at the border, right. which in itself is such an amalgam of obviously national politics, but also cuts into state politics in some interesting ways. Um, you know, you road of the situation at the border, you know, look at the practice towards the end of the piece. Look at the practice, that is what they're doing and not doing from a policy perspective, and look at the political conversation. The first is a gnarly and messy problem, and I'm going to emphasize this, but a solvable one. The second has become a way for each set of elected officials and the people who would like to become elected officials to appeal to partisan voters on both sides. So tell us about the burr under the saddle in writing this. Well, you know, it was it was interesting because, you know, you have the incidents at the border, what's going on right now. And right now we're talking about detention centers that are overcrowded. Uh, the You know, I have a column in the works, um, you know, that'll appear later this week on the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security basically has been dogging the Homeland Security people and the Border Patrol people and everybody else for months about the problems down there. So they've got this, you know, problem, and that's the news piece. And then, as you know, as well as anybody, you know, we just came out of the field with a poll that once again showed that immigration and border security are top-of-mind problems for Texans uh, when you ask them about issues facing either the state or the country, um, and that the uh, opinions on things around this, everything from, you know, what do you think about dreamers? What do you think about amnesty? What do you think about? And, and for years of polling that we've done, that you guys have done for us, um, it's clear that we have become segregated into Republicans and Democrats in ways that prevent the problem solving, but that enable the politics. And as you go into a political year like 2020, you look at the situation on the ground in sort of a practical, I think, practical, why don't they fix this? Why aren't they looking for solutions? Why don't they walk out of this forest? 
And then you look over here and say one of the reasons they don't walk out of the forest is because it's politically profitable for both sides. And it's not an equivalency. I'm not taking a side in this thing uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans. But if it does take a side, the side I'm taking is you guys ought to roll up your sleeves and get to work here on the problem instead of the politics. Right. And, and the problem is we see it at this point. I mean, I would, you know, the, the problem is manifesting on the border are all of these folks with a lot of, including a lot of children right. who are being held in overcrowded facilities with particularly the children, but many of the adults as well, you know, what is arguably a lack of basic services, food, water, Oh, space think, to sleep. I, I think it's, you not, can even, say it's if, not even really arguable. At this I think point. you can say if an adult treated a child like this, the government would come in and take the child out of that because of the child's welfare. You know, the government doesn't allow people, parents, guardians to do what the government itself is doing on the border. You know, it, it strikes me that, you know, when we you were talking about the polling, when we polled earlier in the cycle of this crisis on should we be separating families, children from their families, it actually split Republicans. It was a little bit less partisan. Well, and that's the only place where this has moved in the last couple of years. So, you know, we have a persistent immigration, you know, whatever you want to call it, political issue, problem, conversation, whatever, you know, about the policies that we should have in place for immigration and then how should we enforce those and what should be our practice. And the practices that seem to make the Republicans who are very conservative about this stuff recoil is when you start talking about children. You can do almost anything to adults in a political sense without revving up the crowd or worrying your base. But when you begin separating families and children and children can't be, you know, um, they don't even know how to reconnect the kids with the people that they take right. them away from. You know, when you get into issues like that, it's sort of like that's where voters sort of set down their party flags and say, wait a minute. Yeah, because we, we even saw glimmers of that with the dreamers. That is, right. you know, what to do with kids that were brought under conditions beyond their control to the United States are technically undocumented, are undocumented, not even technically, right. but have been given leave, given some policies from before, and whether to make those policies permanent or not, that tapped into that as well. Now, I think it's a little more partisan, but still divided, like the like like the separ like the family separation. Well, we had two Texas governors in a row: uh, George Bush and Rick Perry. One ran successfully per for president; one ran unsuccessfully. But both sort of ran into the same problem when they took a Texas sensibility about dreamers and the border to places like Iowa and New Hampshire and the states where you campaign for president. And, and you know, their take was, I think the Rick Perry version of uh, dreamers was, if, you know, if you don't support these kids getting an education and becoming part of the workforce, then you just don't have a heart. Um, and it got him in big trouble in the debates. But if it had been a gubernatorial debate in Texas, you would have probably seen an audience full of nodding heads, both of Republicans and Democrats, just saying, yeah, you know, they're here. We might as well, you know, make them productive. Well, and that's where I wanted to go with this. Let's, you know, talk a little bit. I mean, not to make you the old guy in the conversation, even though you are. I, yeah, thanks. Um, talk about that kind of arc of views of immigration in Texas and and you know, our assumptions about that for a long time that I think in some ways are being tested a little bit that, that, you know, and what I mean by that is that the, the particular history of Texas, the incorporation of, 
you know, Mexican and immigrant culture, let's call it what it is. Right. Well, we were, we were, we were, we were Mexico before we were the United States. Right. And, and that, and I think there's always been this assumption that even among conservatives, that it created kind of a distinctive brand of conservatism on these issues. And particularly among among Republicans, once the Republican Party became more prominent, right. that somehow this this issue, this issue played differently in Texas. I mean, do you think that's under pressure? Is it still operative? I mean, when in the conversation we're having, it seems to me it's a little we're a little in the middle there. Well, I think there was a lot of you know I don't know how to articulate this necessarily, but you know there was a lot of accommodation of cultural and racial differences because of economics and because of how things work. You know, I'm from El Paso. Um, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, the biggest Hispanic population in Texas is in Houston. Um, and the, the cultures have blended so much that most of the time you're not paying attention to it, or, or a lot of people were not paying attention to it. It wasn't a, a political... You're talking, about, you're talking about kind of on the Anglo-Hispanic axis. Yeah. yeah, and on the, you know, on the whole, you know, well, you know, I'm going to go into this store, but wait, the proprietor isn't an Anglo. I mean, that just didn't happen that much. Didn't seem to happen that much. Maybe I'm, you know, I leave open the possibility I'm blind. Yeah, it was probably, yeah, it was probably a little uneven. And but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the kind of political issue that you could take a campaign into El Paso and campaign on it, or take a campaign into San Antonio or even Dallas and campaign on it. You had, of course, all of the regular issues of this community and that community, gentrification and those kinds of things. I'm not saying there wasn't anything there. Yeah, but, yeah, but, history of school segregation. I but, mean, it's not like it wasn't there at all. But, but there was an ability in some situations to go side by side. And um, the Texans who left the state to campaign for national office, rather than taking that idea and planting that seed in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, instead went up there and came back with a, a kind of a virus of, um, you know... Um, these are aliens and these are others and we need to draw a hard line between us and them. And, you know, that's where we are now, where the Republican Party, you know, uh, voters seem to have formed around the ideas brought to them by their candidates um, at the national level and in, in the beginning and now at the state level of, you know, this is us and that is them. And, and that seems to be the war we're fighting now. And that is not the doesn't seem to be the way to a solution that would involve how do we go how do we put us and them together right i mean i I think part of unpacking that is to also notice that on the side of hispanic public opinion and hispanic attitudes in texas Mm -hmm. it is distinctively you know a notch further in the conservative and the republican direction than it is in lots of other parts of the country so if you compare you know policy positions and ideological positions among Hispanics in Texas versus Hispanics in comparable states like California or, you know, to some extent, Florida, um, you know, you know, higher levels of Republican voting and Republican Party identification in Texas than you see in these other states. So that traffic is actually it's not just a story of how the majority population interacted with the Hispanic population, but things that are distinctive about the Hispanic population in Texas, like longer-term residency, different immigration patterns, which all kind of come together in this, you know, this kind of center-right political culture in Texas. And, you know, to me, the question of the moment in a lot of ways is, 
you know, how is that actually going to hold as we move forward in 2020? And then in 2022, in the Texas elections, depending on how this border situation does or does not get resolved, because, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot before. If you, You know, I think one of the things that was distinctive about Rick Perry, who was governor from basically 2001 to 2015. Right. Um, was his ability to politically manage I think I think he caught that shift whether intuitively or not. He had, you know, Rick you Perry's, know? you know, Rick Perry's superpower I think was a really great nose. He had a really great you know, seeing things before others were seeing them. He saw the Tea Party before the rest of the Republicans yeah. woke up about it. Um, I think you're right about these issues. He was talking about rural and urban issues in a, you know, nuanced way a long time before a lot of people were. But, you know, I think his ability to um, kind of suss things out, you know, what's the what's the lay of the land politically, you know, he just yeah. had superior skills. Well, I mean, I think I think he really, I mean, I think one of the I things say he has, he's, he's not dead yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's just the cabinet secretary. Um <laughs> You know, I, I think what was interesting about that was his ability to split off immigration and border security. Because well, he right. talked aggressively about border security, supported spending more money on it, deployed the guard, was willing, frankly, to be lurid on the crime issue, crime and drugs on the border, but was less likely to take hard lines, as you were pointing out, when he went national or tried to go national on things, on immigration, on things like kids, dreamers. You know things like this, and I think that, and it's a know, distinction that's sold below below I ten. You know, if you if you draw a line right. starting in El Paso along I ten, and then follow, you know, what is it, thirty seven down from San Antonio to right. Corpus, Corpus, everything underneath yeah. that line. If you make that distinction between sort of the these people argument of immigration and the right. crime argument, or you know, of, of, of border security, it, people below that line are receptive to that. Yeah. I mean, they don't, you know, yeah, they're just like everyone else. They don't want crime in their communities anyway and are exactly. are willing to, you know, yeah, are willing to respond to that. I, I think all of this points us then to the election landscape and where we are right now. I mean, if right. we sort of pivot a little bit, I want to start a little bit gossip on the gossipy side since we have you here. Um one of the big questions at state level politics for insiders right now is, you know, what happens to the partisan balance in the state legislature? And I think there are very understandable differences of opinion and right. and projection on this as for as background for for people that have not followed this up to this point. Uh, the Democrats, as people have probably heard, had a good year at the state legislative level um, at in both the House and the Senate closed the gap to nine seats in the in the state house nine of the 150 seats gained two in the senate and our typical expectation and well, gained two but lost one yeah gained two yeah right right but, yeah so they so basically if you look at the arc of this our expectation normally would be wow they had a good midterm election right we expect more democrats to turn out in a typical presidential election year Maybe they can build on this. This year, that's not as clear because of, frankly, just the Trump effect. Well, in know, summary, what so what do you the, what do you think is going on? What are your expectations? So part of what happened in the midterm election was that we got a presidential level turnout, and you know, in Texas for a long time, it has been true that the state is very red in midterm elections when turnout is lower, 
and not as red, but still red in presidential elections when turnout is higher. And we got, um, instead of getting the normal number of around 5 million, give or take, voters in a midterm election, we had 8.2, 8.3 million. Yeah. I don't have the number in front of me, but ab- right. above 8 million. And so we had a presidential level turnout and we got a presidential level um, result, uh, you know, that we didn't expect in an off year. So the question now is... In and my, by that you mean at the top of the ballot, Beto O'Rourke almost beat Ted Cruz. Ted the, Cruz the, only lost by, or only won by less than three less points. Less than three points. The races were very close at the top. Um, Governor Abbott had a, a terrible opponent in Lupe Valdez and won by 14 points. That was the high watermark. Right. Uh, but he had won by 20, this, like the gubernatorial right. election before. Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, won by less than five points. The attorney general won by less than four points. It was a bad year for Republicans. As you said, there were pickups in the legislature. There were some pickups in Congress, a couple of right. uh, three, I think. And so the question is, was 2018 the beginning of a trend? And that's how the Democrats will pitch and are pitching the 2020 election. We need to keep this train rolling. We gained 12 seats in the House. If we gain nine more, we have a majority in the House. We elect a speaker. We can begin to play in issues. We can begin to play in particular on redistricting, which comes up in the next legislative session. Uh, In the Senate, the only uh, senator who is in a troubled situation, and I'll explain that in a second, as we go into the 2020 elections, is Pete Flores of Pleasanton. Um, He is a Republican elected in a special election in what had been a Democratic district, and in a district that votes strongly Democratic. It's and, Pleasanton or adjacent to San, San, it's a San Antonio area. Right. It's, a, it's, it's one of those big districts that goes from San Antonio almost to El Paso. Right. It mirrors, in some ways, the 23rd Congressional District that Will Hurd holds. But it's more Democratic than that district. And <clears throat> so the Democrats think they can take that back. So that gives them some more leverage in the Senate, where Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, enjoyed a supermajority for a period and doesn't look on the horizon like he's going to have one for a long time. Again, going into a redistricting year. If you're the Republicans in this situation, you say, well, you know, 2018 was a bad year for us, but it was an anomaly because of this high turnout and because of Trump and, you know, stuff like that happens, but we're going to bounce back. And not only do we not think that the Democrats are going to pick up these nine seats, we don't think that they're going to hold all 12 that they got from us last time. Right, because we should, we, should, we, should, we should interject there, yeah, that because of the high turnout, because it was right. a good Democratic year, the, the Democrats took some seats in what are arguably at least competitive, but maybe even Republican districts that right. they now have to hold on to. Yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the district, a lot of the people that were watching this closely, and these were, you know, guesses, but they were smart people guessing, we're saying probably a five to seven seat Democratic pickup in the 2018 elections. This was before the election. And they came out and they picked up 12. They did better than expected. Right. Um, and so the question is, will they, will they continue to do better than expected? Is this a change in the electorate? Was this an anomaly? You know, what have we got going forward? Right. And they're both kind of playing those hands. The, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, has sent some migrant political workers down to Austin, a half dozen folks, I think, to try to build the case for five or six congressional seats now held by Republicans, uh, trying to take advantage of this, looking at the numbers from the Cruz and O'Rourke race in particular, saying if these numbers pertain, then we'll win some seats. And again, they're going for, you know, in Congress, they're going for a majority in the House. And 
the legislature, where a lot of national money, I think, is going to turn up, they're going for a voice in redistricting, particularly uh, with regard to the congressional Right. We've mentioned redistricting a couple times. You should probably just, you know, lay out the fact that, you know, redistricting happens every 10 years in the wake of the census required by the Constitution. This is done at the state level, and it's done in Texas by the state legislature. Right. Um, at least they get the first crack at it. Um, and so the partisan balance in the legislature, when they go and they re and they redraw the districts for both the state legislative and the congressional seats, it sets the pattern for the coming 10 years. And of course, there's a lot of variability in how you can draw those districts. And they are generally drawn to partisan advantage right. by the majority party right. if they are in control of the process. And the only constraint on it right now is the Voting Rights Act and the and the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, are you uh, giving minorities the voice minorities deserve in your state? And the Supreme Court just ruled that, you know, if you uh, discriminate on the basis of partisanship, you know, that's just that's beanbag, yeah. man. That's Hands that's on. that's within the rules. So really, the only restraint on this is the um, Voting Rights Act and because of a, another ruling that happened after the last redistricting, the state doesn't have to go to the federal government for permission on changes in election law and on redistricting maps. It instead right. puts them into force, and the feds can come after them if they want to. Okay, so you've done a good job of explaining this, but now what do you think? So what I, <laughs> I mean, think... in other words, what, let me put it this way. What are you watching as we, as we sit here in summer of 2019? Right. And at least in the folks... You know, I spent several days with one of your colleagues at the Tribune, and when we were talking about this, it was yak, yak, yak about rumors about who's going to who's going to resign and who's not. Right. I still find that some of that pretty unreliable. But let me ask, what are it's you? Pretty early for that. What are you watching right now as the gauges of how the cycle is shaping up at the state level? So the. I you know I think a couple of things let me start at the end if the democrats win the texas house then they will have a say in how the maps are drawn you'll have a republican senate you'll have a democratic house they'll draw new congressional maps they'll draw new senate maps and they'll draw new house maps and here the roads diverge if the house and senate agree on those maps and send them to the governor and the governor agrees bada bing bada boom we're done Chances are that they don't agree and that the Democratic House doesn't go along with the Republican governor and the Republican Senate. In the case of congressional maps, that sends the maps to the courts right. to draw. In the case of legislative maps, it sends the maps to this weird five-member thing that, you know, regardless of what happens in the 2020 elections, yeah. will have at least four Republicans on it. Right. Right now it has five on it. It's called the Legislative Redistricting Board. So the legislative maps are going to be drawn by Republicans however these elections come out, right. unless some, you know— unless something completely turns over the apple cart. So you're watching uh, th what happens with the congressional stuff, and that's where a bunch of national money comes into this. A lot of people are trying to raise money right now. If you, if you are in any way political and you have an email account, you've been getting besieged by a particular kind of fundraising request, which really has a lot of its basis in the Beto O'Rourke fundraising campaign against Ted Cruz. Raise little amounts of money persistently, and effectively over a period of time, and you don't need PACs and big donors right. and stuff. And so you see everybody trying this now. So what worked in 2018 for one candidate sort of operating alone is now being tried by everybody in the field, which is going to dilute its effect. Um, 
And, you know, so I'm watching the fundraising, what I call the financial primaries, who, who's got the most money, who's going to be able to have the money to mount serious bids. What's the environment going to be? We don't know exactly, you know, you don't know until eight weeks before an election or six weeks what the election's really about. Is this one going to be about economy, immigration, war, something we don't know about? I do think that Trump is going to be at the center of it, though. And I that, was going to say, you know, we know it's going to be at least to some degree about the incumbent president. Right. And if the economy is banging and, you know, that usually reflects well on an incumbent. Um, the way to bet in these things historically is, you know, if you're if you're just putting an even bet on a presidential race, don't bet it against an incumbent seeking reelection. They usually win. Um, you know, the two exceptions in my lifetime were Jimmy Carter, who had a terrible economy and 52 hostages in Iran. And George H.W. Bush, who had the misfortune of running in a year when Ross Perot, an independent billionaire who just passed away uh, from Dallas, uh, got 19 percent and probably took it out of George Bush. And that's how Bill Clinton became president. Unless you get something weird like that, you know, the way to bet here is probably to figure out, okay, if Trump wins, how does he win and with what? How much does he win by? One of the things that was notable in the... 2018 election and to some extent in the 2016 election was how much other Republicans outperformed Donald Trump on the ticket. And the question, if you're running a Republican campaign now going into 2020, is how is Trump going to perform and by what margin do I have to outperform him to get my candidate across the line in, in this congressional district or this Senate district or this House district? And, and what's your sense of, you know, I mean, you're I know that you've been going around the state a bit since the since the session was a legislative session ended at the end of May, talking to groups, so you've been out and about a bit. You know, you and I have talked about this. I mean, my own sense is that part of the theory of the case for Republicans in the legislature was to do what they could to insulate themselves from the national dynamic that you're talking about, be it both Trump on the Republican side or Trump on both sides, and the outside money flowing in that then, you know, trickles down into shaping the electoral terrain, you know, and so and so, you know, the the argument would go: the legislature did things that they thought people wanted at the state level. They worked on public education. They did things on property taxes, in the hope that if you're a guy or a woman just running from the Texas legislature, you can go back and go, oh yeah, this is all going on, but here's our thing. This is what we did. Right. You think it's going to work? I, you know, I think I mean, it might. A, is that, you, I mean, I, I think you think that theory is probably about right. Well, yeah, I think a lot of this was cleaning up the bathroom. Um, they, you know, they came, they came <laughs> you out. You have to explain that. Well, they came out of the 2017 legislative session, and, you know, they had this piece of legislation, everybody, that came to be known as the bathroom bill, and it had to do with who gets to use which restroom. Right. Is it according to your birth gender or your gender identity? What exactly? And it really knocked a bunch of other stuff out of the center of the table and became the sort of the prime issue in a legislative session. And I think when they got home, and this is anecdotal and, you know, um, just talking to legislators and candidates over the last two years, they got home, the Republicans and the Democrats and everybody, you know, even people who were for the bathroom bill were like, what are you doing? You're doing all this crazy stuff. We have all these serious problems. You guys are up there, you know, mooking around with this, you know, culture war thing. And they were also doing it at a time when Donald Trump was re, 
arranging the furniture in politics, you know, in a, yeah. in a way where, you know, a, a disruptive kind of politics. And they came into this session chastened by the, you know, what happened in the 2018 elections. And by chastened, I mean the Republicans were chastened, yeah, sure. the people who were in charge. And having heard all of this about bathrooms and having seen the results in the 2018 elections said, you know, we need to basically straighten up and fly right. And their version of straighten up and fly right was let's do property taxes and school finance. Those are very salient issues for voters. Uh, the legislature can talk about immigration, but we really don't have much power to do much about it. We're certainly not going to talk about bathrooms again. Let's just keep a focus. And they did keep a focus and they came out. And I think, you know, unless those changes that they made to property taxes and school finance, uh, find an unreceptive audience, I think people are kind of willing to look at it, you know, at least at this early stage and say, well, they did what we sent them up there to do. And so is your sense that, I mean, you got any sense of how it's going over having been out there? Uh, you know, a little I mean, bit. We've got some sense from our polling, but yeah, well, they're, they're a little bit. I mean, you know, the, the sand and the, the sand and the oyster here is on property taxes. The legislature would love to lower your property taxes, but really doesn't have the power to do that. They have the power to put some incentives in that might, you know, get some localities, whether that means school districts, counties, or cities, to lower their property taxes. But in terms of getting a property tax cut to voters in a way that they feel it and they say, wow, there's a chicken in my pot, um, I don't think they did that. And so if voters were expecting a tax cut, there's going to be some pushback there. On the school finance thing, the Senate voted out a bill unanimously, Democrats and Republicans, that said every school teacher in Texas should get a $5,000 teacher pay raise. And at the time, everybody was saying, you know, this isn't going to happen because it takes all the money off the table that we need for other things. And, you know, it's crazy. But they passed it and they got a lot of publicity. They got a lot of headlines. They all talked about it a lot. And now that the session is over and that's not what happened, the teachers all over the state, not all of them, of course, but enough that, you know, it's noisy are going to their school boards and saying, where's my 5,000 bucks? Yeah. Um, the legislature did leave it to school boards to say, you know, which teachers get the raises, how much raises they get, how they use the money, yada, yada, yada. And if people, voters are happy with the way that that all sorts out and they feel like the state has leveled the game between how much local property taxes have to support schools and how much the state supports schools, things like that, then that'll benefit the state's top officials. But the problem with bread and butter stuff in politics is that it's hard to get voters to reward you for doing the job they think you're supposed to be doing in the first place. Right. I think that's right. I, you know, just as, as you're explaining that, you know, you, you compare that explanation right. as a pitch to voters to the volume and intensity of what's coming nationally, I think they're in trouble. <laughs> well, Honestly. you know, a, a, one of our <clears throat> one of our um, one of the candidates who ran in an election, you know, several cycles ago, but this this applies forward is um, he was running as a statewide official, but not at the top of the ticket. And I said, you know, how did that go? And he said, well, it didn't go well. It's a Democrat. And said it didn't go well. And I said, why? And he said, I could have spent ten million more dollars. But I wasn't the guy at the top of the ticket, and everything that happened to me was a result of something at the top of the ticket. And I think that's going to be true in a Trump election, yeah. for better or for worse, for Democrats and Republicans. That's a clear position. Ross, thanks for coming by. Yeah, happy to do it. Y'all have a good week. Jim Henson here, and we'll talk to you next week. The 
Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.